If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 541. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch the podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you the free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy, purchasing one of those classes there, or 12 of those classes there. All that does help keep this podcast free of charge. You could, of course, enroll there free of charge and get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, if you don't want to pay a dime. But you can buy classes there, and of course, it is the holiday season. We've started now. Of course, they started the holiday season at Home Depot back in the middle of October, right? So uh, we're already in the shopping season, and my classes are never out of stock. If you can't get that gift... That's out of stock because it's stuck in California at some port because we we don't manufacture anything here in the U.S. anymore. Hey, no problem. I manufacture McClanahan Academy courses right here in the good old southern part of the United States. And so you get that just by purchasing one of those, right? You get it right then on demand and you have it for the rest of your life. It's not like something that's going to wear out. You've got it forever. So that knowledge is there for you for the rest of your life. And once you download it, I guess you're, you know, whoever has access to your downloaded files will have it too. Also, you can click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Click on the support tab, get a book plate, get one of my books, wherever books are sold. They make great gifts. Uh, you can uh, also support the show at anchor.fm. You can go to learn true, T R U E, learn true history.com. This is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Lots of great ways to support the show. As always, share it around on social media, rate it where you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And this is the last episode of this week. We're in the first week of November. We only have five weeks, I think I've counted, of the Brian McClanahan show left this year. So uh, after this week. So we're wrapping up 2021 pretty soon here. And I want to finish up the week with a discussion of Ian Milheiser. Now, I've talked about Ian Milheiser a lot on this show at different times. And Ian Mil, if you want to know what the what the lunatic left legal people think, you got to read Ian Milheiser. He's at Vox now. He used to be at Think Progress, I think it was, which wrote a whole bunch of stupid stuff about nullification and other things. These people engage in uh, slanderous attacks. I mean, they don't even they don't even hide their contempt. But so Vox is the perfect place for Milheiser. Think Progress went bankrupt, and so uh, and it's fitting. But we have Vox now, and Vox is ridiculous. But if you want to know what the left thinks, you got to read what they say about stuff. I mean, this is and Milheiser's a nice way to do that. He's a nice, you know, gateway into the left. And he wrote a piece a couple of weeks back about Neil Gorsuch. Now. He hates Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett and Roberts and Alito and Thomas. He doesn't like any of them. Doesn't like any of them. He thinks that all their positions are hogwash and stupid. And he's, I mean, this is a guy that talks about just about every day packing the court, right? We need to pack the court. We need to pack the court. 
Also abolish the Senate. It's one of those other big things. Abolish the Senate. Pack the court. And for a long time it was, we need, where's Merrick Garland? Well, we got Merrick Garland. What's Merrick Garland do? Well, he says that uh, soccer moms who go in and protest at school board meetings are now domestic terrorists. Or how about the guy that was protesting, the, and we know this now, protesting at a school board meeting in Loudoun County, Virginia. He was protesting because of an assault. And now it was the school board denied they knew anything about it, but the police were investigating and they knew that. So they're lying. And right, you've got the potential governor of New Jersey, this idiot McAuliffe up there, saying parents shouldn't have control over their education. So parents that disagree with that are now domestic terrorists. This is how stupid these people actually are. And that's why I think, at the end of the day, unless the Democrats figure out some way to have a system where they can have a whole bunch of mail-in voting, um, we're going to see McAuliffe lose. It'll be a close election, but I think he's going to lose. Maybe he won't. I mean, I don't know. I can't say 100%. You never know because you never know what turnout's going to be like. But it's going to be razor thin, and I think this is killing the McAuliffe campaign, and he knows it. I don't think Obama can save him. Biden certainly can't save him. I'm not, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. And um, a lot of that is because parents have been thinking locally and acting locally. They've been resisting critical race theory. They've been resisting the mandates. They've been resisting all the stuff that's come out of the modern uh, leftist culture war, and they're getting, they're getting uh, you know, called terrorists for it. I mean, they don't, they're not going to stand for this stuff, right? So I think that's part of the reason. There's a backlash against, and this is this last week I talked about as woke reached its peak, right? There's a backlash against these things. The swing back the other way. Now, I don't think they're going to crush it entirely. So I don't think they're going to crush it entirely. The backlash is not going to be strong enough to get rid of it, just like progressivism. We thought that was going to be crushed and killed in its cradle and it was going to be gone it's only come back stronger, right? So I think we need to be vigilant of these things, and it's not going to go away. I talked about the lawsuit that you've got in Oklahoma now, and you're going to see it in other places against state bans on critical race theory, which are completely constitutional, by the way, in my opinion, based on the original Constitution. But regardless, we're going to see all this stuff go back and forth. And so, if you, again, if you want to know what the left is thinking, you've got to get into Ian e. Milheiser's head. And so he wrote this piece on Neil Gorsuch, published it October 2nd, and he begins, Neil Gorsuch was ready to blow up the U.S. housing market over a minor legal violation. Now, when I get to the, to the conclusion of this, think about what Milheiser is saying here. The case in front of the Supreme Court was Collins v. Yellen, which had its, at its center the Federal Housing Finance Agency, an obscure body that oversaw hundreds of billions of dollars worth of transactions intended to stabilize the housing market after the 2008 recession. The FHFA is led by a single director whom only the president can fire for cause. The plaintiffs in Collins v. Yellen argued that the president must have unlimited power to fire the agency's head, citing the Supreme Court's 2020 ruling in uh, Celia Law v. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But under the Collins plaintiffs' arguments, it also followed that the FHFA head was fired. Every action the agency had taken since its creation in 2008 should be declared void. A truly radical prospect. That argument won very little favor from the justices. In June, the court handed down a relatively modest opinion that gave President Joe Biden and all future presidents the power to fire the FHFA director without reversing the agency's past work. But Gorsuch would have none of it. Now, this is interesting, right? So the question here is, is this thing even constitutional to begin with? It should be the question. Is it even constitutional to begin with? 
In a partial dissent, Gorsuch complained that his colleagues were too spooked by the prospect of unwinding or disgorging hundreds of millions of dollars that have already changed hands. The proper approach Gorsuch opined in Collins was to declare the FHFA's actions void. If Gorsuch had gotten his way, 13 years of work and hundreds of billions of dollars worth of transactions would have been, un- would have been unraveled, possibly delivering a shock to the mortgage lending industry similar to that of the 2008 crisis. And yet, for Gorsuch, the potential consequences were irrelevant to how the court should rule. This is the- Milheiser believes. Now, think about what he's saying here. The Supreme Court shouldn't worry about whether something's constitutional or not. This is what we all say it should do, but they shouldn't even think about that. So here we have the FH. FA. Is it even constitutional? Is this person who's, I mean, only the president can deal with this person. So we've created this bureaucracy that's only accountable to the king, essentially. And the Congress has no oversight over this. So should that even be constitutional? That should be the question. And if it's not, it should go away. And yeah, I mean, if it's done something that's illegal. So what he's arguing is that it doesn't matter if the law is constitutional or not. If it's done all these things, what are we saying about it? it? It would have to unravel. Oh, my gosh, that would be horrible. So think about if the Congress passed a law um, that uh, had some horrible effect, and yet it's unconstitutional, but all kinds of horrible things happen, then the Supreme Court shouldn't undo it because it's going to say that all these horrible things that happened should never have happened. Right? I mean, this is what he's arguing. He makes other he, he makes hypotheticals in this which are just completely stupid in this piece. But th- if you want to know what the what the lunatic left legal profession thinks, you got to read E.M. Milheiser. He says it wasn't the only case this term where Gorsuch brushed aside worries about widespread disruption that could have done tremendous harm to millions of people. Six days before the Collins ruling was handed down, the court decided California be Texas, the most recent attempt by Republicans to repeal the Affordable Care Act by judicial decree. This latest attack on Obamacare rested on legal arguments so weak they were widely derided even by many of the ACA's most outspoken critics. Gorsuch and Samuel Leader were the only two justices who argued that the court should set fire to the Affordable Care Act. Had their views prevailed, approximately 31 million Americans would have lost health insurance. You see, Milheiser's position is pragmatic. Well, it doesn't matter if the law is constitutional. What does it do? It doesn't matter if the law is constitutional or if it's illegal. It doesn't matter if it's illegal, essentially. It's the ends justify the means. That is the very embodiment of not having a constitution at all. Having an unwritten model. This is where I started this this week with this piece at Claremont talking about this. So what, what he is saying here is it doesn't matter if it's legal or not. The ends justify the means. Now, he is a progressive, and this is where I would say that the piece from Monday, there are some things he gets right. This goes all the way back to Hamilton, though doesn't start with progressives. They've done a lot of work to undermine the written Constitution, the Constitution as, as ratified. And this is, this is Milheiser's most glaring uh, problem with Gorsuch. He thinks that he is a textualist, and he gets into that in this piece. In his four years on the court, Gorsuch has staked out a more ambitious agenda than many preceding justices articulated in four decades, and he has seized every opportunity to implement as much of his agenda as possible. He arguably has a better sense of where he wants to take the law than any other member of the court. He is broadly anti-government, skeptical of democracy and the institutions that make it possible, and eager to centralize power within the judiciary. Wait a second here. I thought that these 
judges loved centralizing power in the judiciary. So this is where Milheiser says we need to pack the court, yet we can't have it packed because then Gorsuch, and we, we got to pack the court because of Gorsuch, but we got to pack the court with people that want to centralize power to get rid of the people who want to centralize power. This is how stupid he is, right? That worldview and assertitude of his rightness are married with a willingness, even eagerness, to impose draconian consequences on the nation if he catches something, someone violating his often quite unusual ideas about what the rule should be. Quite unusual, he says. Well, I mean, there's something called, I don't know, the Constitution is kind of not unusual, but hey, he doesn't, Milhiser doesn't care about that anyways. That's a troubling combination in anyone, but it's potentially dangerous one in a judge. And while Gorsuch doesn't always get his way, even on a 6-3 conservative court, his overarching view that power should be concentrated within the judicial branch has broad support among his Republican-appointed colleagues. Well, wait a second. Who did this first? This is Ian Milheiser, the guy that's talking about packing the court. Yet he doesn't, he doesn't like it when the other side has control. So what he wants to do is pack it with people that he has so they can centralize power in the judicial branch. Do you see how inconsistent and hypocritical and frankly stupid Ian Milheiser is? This is why he's so awful. The lodestar of Gorsuch's rhetoric about how justices should interpret the law is textualism, which he described in a 2020 book as the idea that judges' sole task when interpreting legal texts is to determine what an ordinary English speaker familiar with the law's usages would have understood that statutory text to mean at the time of its enactment. Proponents of textualism and its of its close cousin, originalism, which applies the same methodology to the Constitution, often hold it up as a politically neutral approach that prevents judges from substituting their personal preferences for the law. Textualism, Gorsuch writes in his book, requires judges to determine impartiality and fix what the law is, not simply declare what it ought to be. Now, textualism is dangerous because you're saying what the English speaker would have thought of it. No, no, no. you got to go back. I mean, originalism is more important because you got to look at what they said it meant when they when they wrote it, and they ratified it. This is what they said it meant. This is what they said it was going to do. So in the case of the Bill of Rights, for example, I had somebody comment on a on one of my videos about the second you know, uh, state gun control laws. I said they're completely constitutional. No, no, no. And he, he listed all this stuff that he thinks he's right about, which, frankly, um, he has no understanding about the Constitution. This is the problem. You have all these, well, the text says this. Yeah, but if you don't have context of that and you don't understand what they said when they wrote it, then you would think, I mean, this is where textualism is dangerous. I've said textualism is, is a disaster. It's a disaster. In reality, this method rarely lives up to such lofty promises. Many legal texts, including much of the Constitution, are ambiguous and can be fairly read in many ways. This is not true. This is why originalism is the point. Because they can't be read in many ways. What did they say when they wrote the amendments? What did they say when they wrote the Constitution? What is the understanding of that going back to looking like Blackstone, for example? What did he say about these things? How do they understand it at the time? And what should a court do if it includes a century-old decision, one that millions of individuals and businesses may have relied on for decades, misread the text or of a statute? Should 100 years of settled law be upended? Yes. If it's unconstitutional, absolutely. And Milheiser would be 100% on board with this if it suited his worldview, his progressive worldview. He would be fine with it. 
Setting aside textualism's flaws, Gorsuch's record on the Supreme Court exposes just how spotty his application the methodology is. Though his own opinions frequently preach the gospel of textualism, he has shown no compunction about joining other justices' opinions that treat the text of a statute as merely optional. So then he gives you all these different cases, and I'm not going to get into that. That's getting in the weeds, because he's, he's attacking Neil Gorsuch, and that's not what I wanted to talk about this piece. I wanted to show you how these people on the left have contempt for the Constitution. They really do. And what they believe, what they believe is that there is an unwritten Constitution. It doesn't really matter. And if the law in their mind gets what they want, well, then uh, that law should stay in effect, even if it would be illegal, even if it would go against the Constitution. It doesn't matter. So then he has a section, Gorsuch versus Democracy. Few justices in recent years have shown more hostility toward the right to vote and toward democracy more broadly than Neil Gorsuch. His opinion in Brnovich, where he suggested that the Voting Rights Act could cease to exist during Republican administrations, is fairly typical of his approach to the franchise. Well, is the Voting Rights Act constitutional or not? I mean, we know the 15th Amendment. You could say that the Voting Rights Act falls right in line with the 15th Amendment because it gives the power of Congress to create legislation to enforce the 15th Amendment. But are provisions of the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional? When only some states are put under the, under the microscope and other states are not. Right? I mean, so uh, it, it, this, is, this is where we get into these questions. So are there, thought, are there parts of the Voting Rights Act or its enforcement that are unconstitutional? The court's decision in Andino v. Middleton, which was handed down about a month before the 2020 election, offers another data point. In Andino, the Supreme Court reinstated a South Carolina law requiring absentee voters to have another person sign their ballot as a witness after a lower court had blocked this law. When the justices handed down their decision, however, the lower court's order had already been in effect for several weeks, and at least 20,000 voters had already cast an early ballot in South Carolina. A majority of the Supreme Court carved out a sensible exception to this decision, holding that any ballots cast before the stay issues and received within two days of this order may not be rejected for failing to comply with the witness requirement. Gorsuch, however, rejected this carve-out. He, along with Justices Clarence Thomas and Alito, would have tossed out all ballots that lacked a signature, even if those ballots were cast in accordance with the rules that were in place at the time. Well, again, is the law unconstitutional or is it constitutional? If a federal judge blocked it, saying no, this is a, a political decision, and the court says that was an uh, that was that block was unconstitutional, then it should have stayed in a place, and those 20,000 votes should not be counted. It didn't matter who they voted for. They're not saying, well, those 20,000 voters, uh, we're going to have to open them up and see who they voted for. If they voted for Trump, well, then it should be, they should go. And if they voted for Biden, they shouldn't. They should throw them all out. Throw them all out and tell those people you got to vote again. And they'll vote again. They should have been thrown out. Gorsuch also joined the court's opinion in uh, Rocco, I'm sorry, or should say Rocco, be common cause, which held that federal courts may not intervene when state lawmakers use partisan gerrymanders to lock their party into power. Federal courts may not intervene. And in a concurring opinion, a Democratic National Committee be Wisconsin State Legislature. Gorsuch would have given state legislatures sweeping new authority to ignore unconstitutional constraints on their ability to write new election laws. 
He wrote, the Constitution provides the state legislatures, not federal judges, not state judges, not state governors, not other state officials, bear primary responsibility for settling election rules. So then, then, then Milheiser says this, taken to its logical extreme, this position would prevent Democratic governors in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania from vetoing voter suppression laws or partisan gerrymanders by those states' Republican legislatures. Well, that's not true because that veto would be part of the legislative process. What they're saying is that a state judge or state governor, I should say, cannot just issue by decree election law changes. That's all he's saying. The legislature has to initiate these changes. So Milheiser is creating a straw man, boogeyman here that's not right. It could also prevent states from setting up independent redistrict- redistricting commissions to combat gerrymandering. Well, not really if the legislature set it up and it came from the legislation, right? But you can't have the election commissioner decide to do it a month before the election. This is what we're going to do. This is the point in 2020. This is where Milheiser's gaslighting a little bit here. And it could strip state Supreme Courts of their power to strike down election laws that violate the state constitution. Well, um, if the constitution allows for the state legislatures to control what cases the state courts can hear, sure, they could do that. That's been the case anyways. Because that would also apply to state elections and federal elections. As Gorsuch votes to limit the franchise and make it easier for Republican lawmakers to skew the results of elections, he has also launched a direct attack on free press, an institution that is essential to any democracy. It becomes fashionable for justices across the partisan divide to blame the media for the fact that the judiciary is increasingly seen as political. Justices Thomas, Breyer, and Barrett all recently blamed the press for, in Thomas's words, suggesting that judges place their personal preference ahead of the law. But Gorsuch is one of only two justices, Thomas is the other, who has explicitly called on his court to strip away First Amendment rights from journalists. Oh. And so he gets into some cases here, and again, it's a launching attack on Gorsuch. The last part of the piece, he said, when Gorsuch first arrived in the court, he seemed unlikely to exert much influence over his colleagues in a high-bound mon- uh, monastic institution whose members have, historically at least, tried to convey the impression that they are engaged in something other than pure politics. And so he gets into a long line here where Gorsuch uh, didn't write well and his, his, um, his opinions are, are, read, are hard to read. They're garbled and, pos- as one journalist said, impossible to take seriously. But he says he's gotten, he's gotten better at this. But his conclusion, his conclusion says this. He says, but in Buckaloo, Gorsuch ignored the frame, this framework altogether, instead suggesting that the scope of the Eighth Amendment was determined over two centuries ago, and it may never change. Death was the standard penalty for all serious crimes at the time of the founding, Gorsuch wrote, nor did the latter edition of the Eighth Amendment outlaw the practice. On the contrary, the Fifth Amendment, added to the Constitution at the same time as the Eighth, expressly con- contemplates that a defendant may be tried for a capital crime and deprived of life as a penalty, so long as proper procedures are followed. He's 100% right about that. He's 100% right about that, but what Milheiser doesn't like is that he's not following Earl Warren. Because he doesn't do what Earl Warren said 
The amendment must draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of maturing society. Gorsuch is saying that's false. That's not what a, that's not what amendment does. Earl Warren is Ian Milheiser. This is the problem. We can't, and this is where I would say that Ray Boy, we can't live in an America. There's there's not going to be any peace in this America with these two competing views, and it's cultural. It's not just ideological. It's cultural. With this brazen ruling, Gorsuch produced a majority opinion that is likely to have far more impact than Alito's decision in Glossop. While Glossop preserved the ability of states to execute people, even if they must inflict severe pain in order to do so, Buckaloo did all of that, and it announced a revolutionary new framework that could upend more than 60 years of Eighth Amendment jurisprudence. Well, if, it's, if all this stuff is illegal and unconstitutional, that's what it should do. This is what you're supposed to do when the case... I mean, if, the, if pre, previous judges did not make the correct ruling because of decency, evolving standards of decency or progress, well then, clearly, uh, something's wrong here. They're not following the Constitution. They're not even doing their job. They should be impeached for that. Milheiser says, When Gorsuch has a chance to write a majority opinion, in other words, he typically shoots for the moon. His jurisprudence shows utter disregard for the norms of of an institution he now belongs to and for the work of generations who come up with a system of law that can manage a pluralistic society. It's a revolutionary project, breathtaking in its audacity and nihilistic at its core. So, you see, this is where the left and the right come together. The neoconservative Straussians and these people, they're all just really on the left, because to the, to the right, Calhoun is Hagelin and nihilist, and to the left, every conservative is Hagelin and nihilist. I mean, this is what it is, right? Neil Gorsuch is just an ideologue. It's what he is. He's a nihilist, an ideologue. He's just as bad as Calhoun. This is what Milheiser would say. And the right, no, 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 Calhoun's different. We're not like that. So I wanted to cover this thing, and I didn't read the whole thing because, again, a lot of it's in the weeds, and it's case law, and it's just eyes are going to you know, glaze, glaze over, and it's not going to be that exciting to listen to. But the important thing is that Milheiser is the guy, if you want to read what the left really thinks about the Constitution, which they don't care about, but he's also very inconsistent. But this is the thing. You go read Ian Milheiser for a popular. He, he writes in a popular way. It's easy to get through, right? So you read Ian Milheiser. And laugh hysterically the entire time. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.